Father, thank you for the chance to return and study tonight. We enter into these studies, Father, with great expectations that in your word we will find things we can find nowhere else. And as we've gone through this study, Father, it's been seen already that you've revealed to us things of ourselves and of our lives and of our need to change or to do differently, even as we've studied events of so long ago. So I ask, Father, that as we go tonight back into the study where we left off, that our process of learning would accelerate, that what we know so well from stories and from depictions that we've, we've seen elsewhere would be shown to only scratch the surface, that there would be so much more for us, and we would come to see that tonight and in the weeks to come. Thank you for the privilege that it is to sit at your feet, and I ask, Father, that all that is taught tonight would come out of your mouth through mine, not from my thoughts, but yours. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. In our last meeting, we quickly covered the first six plagues of the judgments against Egypt. And we did it relatively quickly because we were focused primarily on the pattern that is embedded in those events, learning what we could from each, but also learning from the overall pattern. I gave you a chart that we were using to help track that progress. Because we've already done the first six, we're only going to do the last three of nine tonight. Because we've already done the first six, I'm going to go ahead and hand out another sheet here toward the end that has all the answers in it. As always, you can get these online as well. So we looked at this in the terms of a pattern. We noticed that there was structure and God is a God of order and structure is in his nature and in keeping with his character. Nothing he does is capricious. And yet he uses his ordered structure to communicate. So not only do the events themselves carry a message, but the order of them, the structure of them also carries messages that are complementary with the events. We noticed that the first nine came in groups of three. We noticed that they all had certain patterns to the way they start, to the way they progress, that they foreshadow judgments that will come in the end times. And in that way, we began to see that the Exodus itself as a whole is a picture or a shadow of a future period of judgment. We also noted that God was at work in these judgments to mock or to indict, to assault Egyptian gods, Egyptian pagan gods. So there's many layers or levels of understanding we can look at in, as we've studied. And tonight we're going to conclude that examination, but not including the tenth. For that judgment clearly stands apart from the rest and as such has an entirely different purpose. We come to that when we come back next time. So let's go to Exodus chapter 9. 9.13 is where we pick up looking at the seventh judgment. So we'll read there. Exodus 9.13. Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and stand before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go, that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you and your servants and your people, so that you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. For if by now I had put forth my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, you then would have been cut off from the earth. But indeed, for this reason, I have allowed you to remain in order to show you my power and in order to proclaim my name throughout all the earth. Well, that's just an introduction, but I want to stop there because he gives us something there that's worth noting as we go into the first of this last series. As we've noted already, every time you start a new series... 
what comes with the first plague of that new series, a warning and a warning in the morning. Remember the little cute little way to remember that. So the first of the series has this warning in the morning. Verse 13 says, rise up early. The opening, though, of the plague, this opening section is different than what we've seen up to this point. We haven't had this kind of extended narrative from God himself on what he was thinking as he goes about the plagues. He's given some of this to Moses, but now he gives it directly to Pharaoh. He begins with the same demand. He says, let my people go. But then rather than waiting for Pharaoh to have some response to that, the Lord just continues with this warning, this ominous warning. He says, this time I will bring all my plagues. What he's saying is you're no longer in a position, if you ever had been, to stop these judgments. They are all coming. You must endure them all. Your people will endure them all. It's not a position in which Pharaoh has a choice to stop them. Now they are a foregone conclusion. And he says in verse 14, this has to happen so that the people of Egypt and all the world will know that there was no one like the Lord. And that's consistent with what he told Moses even before any of these plagues got started in the first place. He said, I will harden the heart of Pharaoh so that he will not let my people go and so that my name would be glorified. My power would be shown through what I will do. So this is in keeping, of course, with where God has been headed all along. Now, the next thing God does, though, in this opening section is quite intriguing. He sets the record straight with Pharaoh concerning something that we all need to remember. Pharaoh thinks, and we know this by what God now is saying, Pharaoh thinks that he has survived these plagues by dint of his protection. The gods of Pharaoh have protected him thus far. Or maybe he considers his own strength and power as monarch is responsible for his survival. But whatever he's crediting it to, it's not the right source. And the Lord here tells him, your survival, Pharaoh, is merely proof of my mercy and of my ultimate purpose in your life. Because had the Lord wanted to wipe out Pharaoh and the Egyptian people, he says you would have been gone already. It's always been in my capacity to make you nothing. So the fact that you're still here is only the result of my need for you to be here under these circumstances. And in verse 16, the Lord says, Pharaoh and Egypt have been allowed to remain so that they could be witnesses to God's power. And then in return, they would then proclaim God's name throughout the world. Now, this isn't only going to come from the Egyptians, of course. Israel will do the same. They will make note of what they see and they will proclaim it throughout the world and throughout their generations. But Pharaoh and Egypt are another source for that proclamation, for God's receiving of glory from man's witnessing of what they've seen God do. Those statements convey a weighty theology, which is easily lost if we run past this too quickly. It's a theology you have to understand to appreciate what God is doing in the Exodus account overall. The first thing to take from this is God holds the life of every man in his hands and he allows unbelievers to live alongside believers as part of his plan. I know it's easy at one level to understand and agree with this principle that God is the supporter of all life and everyone lives by his choice or according to his will. But don't overlook its significance theologically. The earth today is populated with billions of people and most of them do not know and follow the living God. And most will not know or follow the living God. They are disobedient. According to scripture, they are disobedient, ungodly, and corrupt. And they offend a holy and just God by their mere existence. 
that was our state prior to faith as well. We're no better than them. We're simply those who have received mercy. Yet, since Cain walked the earth, unbelievers have lived and enjoyed the blessings of a world that God created for his glory. In the Beatitudes, the Lord himself cites this very principle when he points out that the Lord is long-suffering and merciful in his nature. He says in Matthew 5:44, he says, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Jesus' point here is God is willing to support the physical needs of people whose very existence is offensive to him. And then if that is God's willingness, if he has that propensity to show mercy, then would we not also expect to do the same in our life, which is why Jesus would say, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So the first point is that we have to acknowledge all men live by God's will, which is another reason, by the way, that we say that our days are numbered according to God's purpose. We live only as long as he wants us to. That's according to his plan. But with that comes this understanding that that is true not only for the believer, but for the unbeliever as well. So God has purpose in the existence of men and women who do not believe in him. And their very living is proof that he has purpose in their existence. For if he had no purpose in their existence, they would not exist. And yet he does that for people who he will not bring to faith through their entirety of life. So there is purpose in their living apart from whether they are believers or not. The second point is that God does this for his glory. Many believers, I think, have questioned along at some point in their life, you question why has God allowed so much evil to live side by side with his children and to share in this world and cause the trouble that they cause. And the answer is here at a fundamental level. When God chooses to judge the ungodly, he will then have the opportunity to display his power and bring glory to his name in the justness of his judgments. In the interim, he is providing their existence in part to support that opportunity for display of power. If God is to show himself fully, to reveal his nature and his character in full form to the creation, reveal himself in all sides of who he is, when he is ready to reveal that side of himself, that is, wrath against ungodliness, by definition, there must be someone who is ungodly upon whom he puts that wrath. Without the ungodly, no wrath. Without wrath, there is a side of God that goes unknown, even to those who are his children. And knowing that God's purpose in the creation was so that he could express his nature and character fully to a world that could appreciate it and glorify him for it, that demands that he have opportunity to express wrath when justified. Paul explains this succinctly in Romans. Romans chapter 9 gives us the, the core New Testament teaching on this principle of theology. 9.17, Paul says, and note the example Paul uses to prove his point. 9.17, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then, he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. And you will say to me then, well, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? 
Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us, whom he also called. Not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. Here is the core theology that God is reflecting as he speaks to Pharaoh. You're alive because I'm letting you live. And you're alive so that I might use you to display my power and gain glory by the witness that it produces. And that, Paul says, is within the right of the creator. And that men have no place to judge him in doing so. As you consider this, and it's a hard theology, it doesn't soothe us, it challenges us. And at a very deep level, it challenges our pride, though we may not perceive it as such at first, but it challenges our pride and challenges our sense of fairness. But all of that challenge is assaulting the thought that God and we think and work on equal planes. And when we finally set that in its proper perspective and we realize, no, as creator, he has all opportunity to do whatever he wants with his creation and cannot be judged by it. Then we retreat, I think, from that offense. And when you do that, when you can retreat long enough to start to consider it, the glory of it starts to be revealed. Because what comes out of that, in my experience anyway, is a better appreciation for what mercy really means. Because none of us have any reason to stand here apart from the mercy of God. And we were not chosen for any reason except for his sake, for his eternal purpose. And it, it humbles you like no other doctrine of Scripture does. So that, to me, is such a foundational understanding that, that pervades Scripture. It's in every place of the Bible. But you see it very clearly here. And, and Paul noted it was so clearly evident that he chose to use it as his example for this doctrine when he was teaching it in Romans 9. Tribulation, by the way, is the ultimate example of exactly this doctrine at work. In a day and an age when the world will be coming to its end and a judgment will, will ensue, there will be those in that time who receive mercy and those who don't. And the glory of God and the power of God will be displayed through both sides of that equation in those days. So God tells Pharaoh that he has been preserved through the first of these plagues so that he could experience the rest of the plagues. And now he's going to have all of them. And now that we've reached the final four, the three we'll study tonight and the extra one of the big one at the end next week, the Lord now reiterates, you're going to see all the plagues I've designed. We know this has been the plan from the beginning, but now what's happening is the Lord's revealing that to Pharaoh. So Pharaoh now gets in on the message that this isn't just going to end tomorrow. There is a plan and this plan is going to play itself out. The judgments have a purpose and the purpose will be fulfilled. But I also want you to notice another important detail from this introduction. The purpose in these judgments is not redemptive. In fact, judgment by definition is not intended to be redemptive. That's the difference between judgment and discipline in Scripture. Discipline is God's displeasure dispensed against his children for the purpose of corrective action against disobedience. It has a redemptive purpose. Judgment is God's wrath poured out against his enemies as their just condemnation for sin. It has no redemptive purpose, is entirely punitive, and justly so. These plagues are called judgments. They're not called discipline for obvious reasons. 
they're going to continue regardless of Pharaoh's behavior because they're not tied to his behavior. In fact, as we've already seen, the Lord is actively working to keep his heart hard and unresponsive so that there can continue to be an opportunity for the plagues to happen. And so as these ten plagues play out, the Lord's power is made known, his name is proclaimed throughout the world, and then in those things they meet their purpose. He doesn't have to repent. He doesn't have to learn from this. He's an object of God's wrath. He's not an object of God's mercy. So who is God's intended audience for this display of power? Well, we've already identified it was Pharaoh and the Egyptians first and foremost. At least that's what's been named. But we know ultimately they're a passing set of characters in this story. They come and they go. And Egypt itself as a nation has come and gone throughout history and will one day be gone forever. But the people that matter the most here are God's people, of course, Israel. They're the ultimate audience for this. They're learning more about their God here than they will through most of their history with God. And Paul says in Romans 9:23, he did so. God did what he did with Pharaoh. He says, to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy he has prepared beforehand for glory. So Israel in this day are those vessels. We in our day are those vessels. God is ultimately interested in seeing those vessels come to understand him better by this display of power against the ungodly. The unbelieving world will see the wonders of tribulation and they will wonder, but they will not be persuaded. Not by the wonders themselves. That's not the intent. Daniel even tells us this in Daniel 12.10 when he speaks of the time to come. He says, many will be purged, purified, and refined. That's the good stuff. But the wicked will act wickedly. And none of the wicked will understand. But those who have insight will understand. And insight here means God-given, God-provided insight. So the final series of Exodus judgments, now these last three, are set up with this introduction from God. But in that itself, there is a parallel to tribulation because the last series of judgments in tribulation, the bold judgments, are not redemptive. They're an outpouring of wrath. We call them the bowls of wrath for that reason. So in the same way that God sets these judgments of tribulation apart at the end as judgments for wrath, not judgments to create believers, not judgments to produce redemptive behavior on anyone's part, similarly... The last series of three of the nine judgments, the last series of three in Exodus are also now being prefaced with this statement that says you're going to see them all. They're here for my purposes to show my glory through power displayed against the ungodly, equating them in a sense to those last judgments of tribulation, at least in terms of their purpose. So let's turn to the seventh judgment itself. God describes what Pharaoh will see happen in Exodus nine, verse 17. He says, still. You exalt yourself against my people by not letting them go. Behold, about this time tomorrow, I will send a very heavy hail, such as has not been seen in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Now, therefore, send, bring your livestock and whatever you have in the field to safety. Every man and beast that is found in the field and is not brought home when the hail comes down on them will die. The one among the servants of Pharaoh who feared the word of the Lord made his servants and his livestock flee into the houses. But he who paid no regard to the word of the Lord left his servants and his livestock in the field. Now the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward the sky, that hail may fall on all the land of Egypt, on man and on beast, and on every plant of the field throughout the land of Egypt. Moses stretched out his staff toward the sky, and the Lord sent thunder and hail 
and fire rained down to the earth and the Lord rained hail on the land of Egypt. So there was hail and fire flashing continually in the midst of the hail, very severe, such as had not been in all the land of Egypt since it had became a nation. The hail struck all that was in the field through all the land of Egypt, both man and beast. The hail also struck every plant of the field and shattered every tree of the field. Only in the land of Goshen, where the sons of Israel were, there was no hail. So God sends the warning very explicitly. He says there'll be a plague of hail unlike anything you've ever seen in Egypt. Now, the purpose of it was to destroy man and beast in the field, as well as ruin all the crops that were growing at that time. Notice, though, there is a degree of mercy here, something he has not done so far that we know in the, in the plagues. He gives an opportunity for God-fearing Egyptians to get out of the way, at least as far as their animals were concerned and their people were concerned. Of course, their crops are still going to be ruined. You can't help that. And, of course, that's the main point of this plague. Now, you would think, uh, this is plague seven, after all, so you would think that by now, Egyptians are beginning to get the message and they're going to heed the warning. And largely, that is true. Remember, the Egyptians themselves have not had their hearts hardened. Only Pharaoh has. And it's at the point now in these plagues where God has started to harden and harden. We've noted that already because it's a sign to us that if he had not stepped in to do that, Pharaoh may have relented by now. So the average common man is probably well past the relenting point. And without the hardening of the heart, they're wondering why this is still going on. They are wondering why their leader hasn't acted to let the people of Israel go. And these God-fearing Egyptians now have mercy in that they have a warning and they have a specific instruction on how to avoid the damage of it for their people and their animals. And we have to believe many took advantage of it. And as God says, the next day the hail comes. Now I want you to notice this final group of three plagues is accomplished through the hand of Moses. We noted that in our pattern. The first three came through Aaron, the second three through God without anybody helping him, and the last three come through Moses. So Moses here stretches out his hand. He brings a mix of hail, thunder, and fire. Now, that's a bad combo, even by Texas standards. And the description continues to emphasize the unprecedented nature, as if we needed it to be described as unprecedented with the whole fire part. That's pretty unprecedented. But still, it's said to be nothing like anything they've ever seen. And it's devastating. Animals, trees shattered. Anybody who was left out died. This is the first plague, by the way, where we have explicitly somebody dying as a result. And if you've ever seen news reports after a major hurricane comes through an area and you look at the landscape and there's nothing above the ground and every tree is, you know, hanging by a thread and so on. This is like that or worse, I would imagine. And it's everything. It's not just a little swath through the town. Of course, it's the whole land of Egypt, except for Goshen. Only Goshen is left untouched here. Again, God showing distinction between his own people and the people of Egypt. The plague parallels both the first trumpet and seventh bowl judgments found in tribulation. So if we're looking for that parallel to the time of tribulation, this one parallels the first trumpet. There was hail and fire in that one. And then in the seventh bowl judgment, there's a whole series of things. One of them is fire and hail as well from heaven. So as before, the Pharaoh reacts. He's getting good at this. Whenever something bad happens, he knows who to call. Who are you going to call? Call Moses. So he calls Moses in. Exodus 9:27. Then Pharaoh sent for Moses and Aaron and said to them, I have sinned this time. The Lord is the righteous one and I and my people are the wicked ones. Make supplication to the Lord for 
there had been enough of God's thunder and hail, and I will let you go, and you shall stay no longer. Moses said to him, As soon as I go out of the city, I will spread out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease, and there will be hail no longer, that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. But as for you and your servants, I know that you do not yet fear the Lord God. Now the flax and the barley were ruined, for the barley was in the ear and the flax was in the bud. But the wheat and the spelt were not ruined, for they ripened late. So Moses went out of the city from Pharaoh and spread out his hands to the Lord, and the thunder and the hail ceased, and rain no longer poured on the earth. But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned again and hardened his heart. He and his servants. Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he did not let the sons of Israel go, just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. You notice there at the end, it mixes Pharaoh hardening his heart with a third party reference to hardening, presumably from God. Further evidence of what we taught earlier on, which is don't make too much of the fact that it's him sometimes and God other times. The point's always the same. God is either going to use his own sin or enforce his own hardening, but either way, he's not going to let this process stops short of the goal. So Pharaoh continues at the beginning here to seek a possible way to stop the judgments. He's doing this now very regularly. As soon as the judgments hit, he's really good at figuring out in the middle of it, I need to do something to stop it. And he's figured out the way to do that is to bring Moses in and tell him, I'll let your people go. And it works and everything stops. But of course, he reverts back to his old nature very quickly. He says in this case, some a couple of interesting things we haven't heard him say up till this point. And this is typical as well. He starts to get to the point of promising anything to make the things stop. In this case, he announces in a very dramatic way, as I imagine it, that he and his people are wicked and the Lord's people are good and the Lord is the righteous one. What do you make of a confession like this or this apparent confession? Right. You know, the Bible describes moments like this in Scripture. In Hebrews chapter 12, you hear of a moment similar to this. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15 The writer says, see to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble and by it many be defiled, that there be no immoral or godless person like Esau, who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For, you know, that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it with tears. If you parse out that last verse carefully, you you find that it's saying he desired to inherit the blessing. He was rejected. He didn't receive the blessing. And he found no place for repentance, though he sought for the blessing with tears. He didn't seek for repentance with tears. He sought for the blessing with tears, but he had no place, no room for repentance in his heart. So Esau is held up as a classic example of a man who comes up short of the grace of God And as a result, when he learned of the consequences of his sin, he displayed tears of regret, hoping to plead his case. And yet those tears could not change God's will. They did not change the circumstances he was in. And so unpleasant circumstances brought him to tears. But the Bible says clearly that the tears were not the result of repentance. There was no place, no room for repentance in his heart. And Paul explains it this way in 2 Corinthians 7. Verse 10, he says, for the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. So 
Paul acknowledges there are more than one kinds of sorrow in the world. There's one that's godly inspired, and then there's one that's worldly inspired. The kind of sorrow Esau displayed and the kind that Pharaoh is displaying is the sorrow of the world. The natural human feelings that we all have when things don't go our way. And most of the time, they're not going our way because it's our own fault. At some level, in some way, consequences of earlier decisions, whatever it is, we're in a bad situation we don't like and we're complaining about it and tears may enter into that equation. It looks convincing. It may fool others. It may even fool us, ourselves, to think that there's been some change of heart, that it's evidence of repentance. But soon enough, the truth will be known. An unrepentant heart ceases its sorrow once the consequences have been removed. That's a really helpful rule of thumb. Not perfect, but really helpful rule of thumb. When the circumstances change for the better, does the repentance go away with it? And so often it does. When someone gets caught in a mistake, what do they do? They cry tears in the face of punishment. When the punishment is no longer there, the tears are no longer needed. As a parent, by the way, that's a helpful a thing to remember as well when dealing with kids, when you're disciplining your children. If you relent too quickly in the face of a child's protests and their claims of repentance, having been caught doing something wrong, if you relent too quickly with the punishment, you risk allowing them to fool you into thinking that they have truly repented when in fact it's just a game that they're playing to get rid of the consequence. And every kid is an expert at doing this. If you do that repeatedly with a kid, it leads to them adopting this really specific behavioral condition. It's got a very technical name. They're called monsters. <laughs> and with adults, doing that with adults leads to manipulative behavior, to very unhealthy behavior in, in relationships. And in the context of the church now and in the context of salvation questions, we need to keep a discerning attitude toward those who claim a changed heart. Even if that claim comes accompanying tears. If it doesn't come with spiritual change that is sustained, we have reason to doubt. Now, I'm not one of those who would tell you that that proves anything concerning their salvation one way or the other. It's simply a rough indicator, but it can be a useful indicator because if we have any doubts, it leaves us on the side of preaching gospel rather than questioning why a believer is acting the way they are. I'd rather preach the gospel to someone who doesn't need it then assume someone's a believer when they're not. And we'll never be perfect in our appreciation of those finer details. It's possible to fool people. I like to say, if you can be convinced to buy a vacuum cleaner at your front door that you don't need, then you shouldn't be surprised someone can convince you they're a Christian when they're really not. Uh, we're capable of doing things like that. The first clue to know that nothing has really changed in his heart is his request for Moses to make supplication for him. That's a fancy way of saying, pray for me to the Lord. This is a very typical pattern. I find this to be more common than you might realize. It's a very typical thing in my experience for unbelievers to try to project a spiritual perspective through certain words, through certain statements. And to an unbeliever's ears, it sounds very spiritual to ask for prayer. And it is, in a sense. But in this context, in the context of someone having a supposedly repentant heart, it is simply highlighting that the person has no personal relationship with the Lord. They have no basis on which to approach him. And you see the same thing, by the way, in Acts 8 with Simon the magician, who after he's pinned to the wall by Peter the apostle for having an unbelieving heart, his response to Peter is, well, pray to the Lord for me that this judgment you speak of won't happen. True repentance always leaves the sinner on their knees, praying to the Lord themselves concerning their own sin 
and their need for mercy. There's no praying for someone else in that regard, on that kind of an issue. You can pray for their salvation, I understand, but you cannot pray their own repentance. So Pharaoh here says, pray this for me, and in that shows where his heart truly is. And then in response, he promises, I'll let Israel go. Now, as you read in verse 30, Moses is not fooled by this display, and so neither will we be. Nevertheless, though, he agrees to stop the plague after he leaves the city. This is further proof to us that Moses gets God's purpose. It's not redemptive. If it were redemptive, meaning if God's intent here was to try to change Pharaoh's heart, then when Moses discovers that his heart is not truly changed, he wouldn't have gone out and stopped the plague. He would have allowed the plague to continue until that changed heart came about. Because the changed heart's not the purpose, Moses has no problem saying, I'll stop the plague. We're going through a process here, Pharaoh. It's got to go to number 10. This is just number 7. We're just going to stop it so we can go to the next one. He's got the perspective. In verses 31 and 32, Moses makes an interesting comment here regarding the effects of the plague. It's in parentheses. It's parenthetical. It's for your benefit and mine. It wasn't said or or spoken in the moment. He says that certain grains were being destroyed, others weren't. In Egypt, they raised principally three grains, and this is, I think, largely true throughout the world, barley, flax, and wheat. And as the plague hits, the flax and the barley are ripening in the field, we're told. So they're susceptible to this plague. They're going to be destroyed. There'll be no barley, there'll be no flax this year in Egypt. That happens in the, about the January to February time frame every year. So we know now where this is happening. This is happening somewhere in the first two months of a calendar year. The wheat doesn't come up until March or April in Egypt. So that crop has been spared at this point. It wouldn't have even come out of the ground. However, it's going to get lost in the next plague. And that means that there are two months between this plague and the eighth plague. Finally, there were multiple Egyptian gods discredited by this judgment. And I'll run through them. If you don't take notes fast enough, don't worry. You're going to get them on the sheet here at the end. Shu, S-H-U, is a sky god and son of Ra, the sun god. So the sky god should have protected him from bad things falling from the sky. Didn't happen. Nut, or as you probably would have pronounced it then, Nut, is the sky goddess. Sky goddess supposed to protect you from bad things coming out of the sky. Didn't work. Seth, the agricultural god, supposed to take care of agriculture. Didn't work. Isis, agricultural goddess, works together with Seth. They're a pair on this. They didn't do their job. So now we move to the eighth plague. Chapter 10. Verse 1, then the Lord said to Moses, go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may perform these signs of mine among them, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I made a mockery of the Egyptians and how I perform my signs against them, that you may know that I am the Lord. We're going to pause on this introduction as well for a moment. So before the seventh plague, God explained his reasons his purposes in preserving Pharaoh's life and the Egyptians' lives, despite the fact that they're resisting him, right? And that purpose was that Pharaoh was this platform on which God could display his power and thereby glorify his name among the nations. Now he begins the eighth plague and he gives Moses additional information about his purpose and his reasons for this whole drama. And this time he tells Moses as he approaches Pharaoh, he's going to find Pharaoh's heart hardened yet once again. And now that will accomplish the Israelites passing on to their future generations about God's glory, about his power to make a mockery of Egyptian power. And here's what he specifically wants them to note. I mocked Pharaoh as this king, this all-powerful man. I mock him. I mock their gods, 
all these supposed gods who can protect them. I mock their might as a nation. I'm taking away their economic power. I'm taking away their ability to produce food. Remember, they were the, the chief food producer in that part of the world, and people came to Egypt for food. And I'm going to mock the Egyptian army, ultimately, when they all get socked up in the water. That's coming. So he's got all of these purposes of destroying and mocking Egypt to the world. The most powerful nation on earth is being brought to its knees. We noted in the last judgment that the intended audience was primarily God's children. And here you see him saying that specifically now. This is his confirmation. This display of power is unprecedented in all history. In fact, it will only be equaled and exceeded, actually, in the time of tribulation. But since then, there's been nothing like it since, and there'll be nothing until tribulation like it. This opening phrase gives us yet another reminder of our responsibility as believers to the living God. We have been ushered into the family of God by God's grace, by his mercy, for the same purpose, for the purpose of bringing glory to God. Our very existence is proof of his goodness. And so just by living, we testify. But that's not the extent of it. That's just the least of it. The call of faith is ultimately a call to works that testify to the glory of God. And Jesus said that himself in Matthew 5:16. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. So the call of faith is ultimately a call to works that testify to the glory of God. So when the Lord has revealed his power and his goodness to us, he doesn't do it by commanding hail and fire down from heaven necessarily but with a variety of other ways, some more powerful in a sense, by the changing of the heart and the changing of our nature being the most evident of that, when he does that good work, we're supposed to be testifying to that work in our lives. And then that testimony gives glory to God. Moses was told, declare God's works to Israel. Israel was told, declare those works to one another. Their children would declare them to their grandchildren. There was this perpetual commandment to repeat the story of the Exodus and in that repetition, glory is magnified for God through successive generations and preserved for them. We don't have any less burden. We just have a less dramatic story, a more personal story. But we are supposed to seek an attitude of thankfulness coupled with self-discipline to speak God's work and glory to everyone we encounter. Even simple comments like, well, God told me or I felt the Lord leading me communicates his work to unbelievers. And, you know, at first it may seem mechanical and a bit contrived to throw those statements in. They're no less true just because you have to force them into your vocabulary. But as they become part of vocabulary, as you begin to think that way, which is helpful anyway, it'll become a natural expression. And that's the best way. The psalmist wrote this in Psalm 71:14. He says, but as for me, I will hope continually and will praise you yet more and more. My mouth shall tell of your righteousness and of your salvation all day long. For I do not know the sum of them. I will come with the mighty deeds of the Lord God. I will make mention of your righteousness, yours alone. Oh God, you have taught me from my youth, and I still declare your wondrous deeds. And even when I am old and gray, O oh God, do not forsake me until I declare your strength to this generation, your power to all who are to come. That's the attitude. It's an attitude first, and then it's a self-disciplined behavior set after that. But with that comes the testimony that serves the very purpose in your salvation. I say it many times, right? I wasn't saved because heaven wouldn't be heaven without Steve. It wasn't because God needed me there. It's because God wanted to use me as that opportunity to glorify himself here. 
and in the time to come. And he can't get that as effectively if I withhold that testimony in my everyday life. So then came the instructions for the next plague. 10.3, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your territory. They shall cover the surface of the land so that no one will be able to see the land. They will also eat the rest of what has escaped, what is left to you from the hail. And they will eat every tree which sprouts for you out of the field. Then your houses shall be filled and the houses of all your servants and the houses of all the Egyptians, something which neither your fathers nor your grandfathers have seen from the day that they came upon the earth until this day. And he turned and he went out from Pharaoh. The eighth plague then is locusts. Another example of an intensifying natural phenomenon. The second in each series comes with a warning again, but now not in the morning. And the Pharaoh learns, as, as he has at the previous series, that there's something coming. He learns that this plague is going to cover the earth of Egypt with locusts. There are going to be so many on the ground, the ground's going to look black. I mean, it's hard to imagine, really, because you can imagine that in a little area. Can you imagine it on the scale of the nation of Egypt? It seems unimaginable. And this happens today in places, in various places, various times. You'll get a swarm of locusts. And they can come pretty close to swarming to the point you can't see the earth, but they don't do it in sections of this size, typically. Even the description of it says it's unlike anything you've ever seen. Whenever this happens, even in today's world, it's devastating to see what comes from these infestations. They're voracious eaters. They consume virtually all vegetation. They're not very picky. Everything except Goshen will be eaten. Notice he says everything that survived the hail. Remember, it's been two months. So you've got a new crop that's come up. And you've got those trees that were left devastated by the hail. Some of them are starting to come back to life. Well, that's going to go away again. This plague has an indirect connection to the tribulation judgments because there's no locust plague judgment specifically. But in the fifth trumpet judgment, the demons that are released from the pit to torment men for five months, they're described by John as having the appearance of locusts with the sting of a scorpion. So... You can find it in the story of tribulation in that way. Moving forward, Exodus 10:7. Pharaoh's servants said to him, How long will this man be a snare to us? Let the men go so that they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not realize that Egypt is destroyed? So Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh. And he said to them, Go serve the Lord your God. Who are the ones that are going? Moses said, we shall go with our young and our old, with our sons and our daughters, with our flocks and our herds we shall go, for we must hold a feast to the Lord. And then he said to them, Well, thus may the Lord be with you, if ever I let you and your little ones go. Take heed, for evil is in your mind. Not so. Go now, the men alone among you, and serve the Lord. And that is what you desire. So they were driven out from Pharaoh's presence. So I mentioned in the previous judgment that the population was losing patience. Well, here you see it. This is an insurrection taking place in the public court of the Pharaoh before the plague's even begun. It hasn't started yet. This is just based on the warning that came into the court. The servants of Pharaoh openly challenge Pharaoh in his court. They ask him, how long do you intend to let this go on? Since, if you haven't noticed, our country's been destroyed. The Hebrew word for destroyed there literally means annihilated. I don't think they're exaggerating either. I don't think it's meant to be uh, an exaggeration. Obviously, these servants believe what Moses is saying, so much so that they're willing to risk revolt 
on merely the basis of his warning that something else is coming. It's really hard to overstate how striking this conversation would have been. Pharaoh was considered a god and his authority could never be challenged. And to even suggest something like to even think like this, you would be killed. So the fact that these servants were willing to openly challenge him in this public way, that tells us two things, at least. First, it's an indication of just how bad things are in the nation of Egypt. The people are willing to risk death in order to make their opinions known to Pharaoh. And you have to think of it just as a trade-off in their minds. I can object to Pharaoh and be killed, or I can go through another plague. I'm going to choose this one. That tells you something about just how bad it was in their minds. Secondly, it shows God at work to discredit the most powerful Egyptian God, that being Pharaoh himself, because the people have clearly begun to question his judgment and his leadership and his power. More importantly, they have seen that there is a power in creation that far exceeds the power of their so-called God, Pharaoh. And that great power is humiliating and annihilating Pharaoh and Egypt. So in the course of all of these, the God that is most discredited is Pharaoh himself. Now, Pharaoh had to have been shocked at what he just heard. In fact, I wonder if he was so shocked, it's, it's what led him to actually go with the comment, to actually act on it rather than to destroy those who said it. He must have sensed some vulnerability here. He must have been shocked by their daring. And he may have thought that he had better give some response to it or he'd have a coup on his hands and then all would be lost. So he calls Moses and Aaron right back and he makes this third attempt to negotiate a face saving compromise of some kind because the servants had said, let the men go. Did you notice that? Let the men go. So the servants actually suggested to Pharaoh, just let the guys go, at least let them take off. He begins with Moses by saying, well, who do you really want to see go anyway? Who are these people who are going to leave? What he's implying is not all would go. Moses responds with the obvious answer. He says, well, we're all going. The old, the young, the sons, the daughters, the animals, everyone. It was never a question. Once again, what he's saying is we're all leaving. We're all not coming back. The only reason to suggest some leave and some stay is to continue to hope that you can hold them all because they wouldn't leave some behind. Pharaoh's response to that statement is a little bit hard to understand in our English because the translation is frankly wrong in English, at least in my Bible. In the way it's recorded with me, it's Pharaoh says first in a sarcastic tone, May your Lord be with you, should I ever let you and your little ones go. What he's saying is, should I ever let you all go, then you better have your God on your side to protect you. You'll need him, in other words. And why does he say this? Well, because in the second half of the verse, Pharaoh says, evil is in your mind. That's the unfortunate part of the translation, because in Hebrew, it's saying something very different. And the English here completely obscures it. In Hebrew, the only thing it says is, See, Ra is before you. Now, Ra is the name of the Egyptian sun god. But that word Ra, R-A, is also, it happens to be also the spelling for the Hebrew word evil. And the translators here have taken the word Ra to simply be the word for evil. And that's why they translate it the way you see it in this way. And it makes no sense as a result. What's really being said here is Pharaoh is using the name Ra to refer to his own god, And he, by the way, was considered to be the incarnation of Ra on earth. So Pharaoh was saying Ra is standing before you, meaning he himself, the God Ra, is standing before you, Moses, threatening Moses and says, if I would ever have let you go in the way you want, you better have your God on your side because I'm a God standing right here before you. And the threat is implicit. I would come after you. I would not let you go. 
He follows that very thought with the actions he takes once he does let them go. Now, that's a sign that this negotiation is broken down. And so at that point, he simply kicks them out of the room and says, we're not going to talk anymore about this. But notice he says, you go with the men only and worship and get out of here. Normally, that would have been a sensible compromise since women didn't usually participate in religious ceremony in the Eastern cultures. But of course, that's not God's plan. So that's not what Moses is going to do. You have to believe Pharaoh kicked him out with that order, hoping it would suffice and holding his breath a little to see if it was going to work. No, it didn't. Verse 12. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt for the locusts, that they may come up on the land of Egypt and eat every plant of the land, even all that the hail has left. So Moses stretched out his staff over the land of Egypt and the Lord directed an east wind on the land all that day and all that night. And when it was morning, the east wind brought the locusts. The locusts came up over all the land of Egypt and settled in all the territory of Egypt. They were very numerous. There had never been so many locusts, nor would there be so many again. For they covered the surface of the whole land so that the land was darkened. And they ate every plant of the land and all the fruit of the trees that the hail had left. Thus, nothing green was left on tree or plant of the field through all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh hurriedly called for Moses and Aaron and he said, I have sinned against the Lord and your God and against you. Now, therefore, please forgive my sin only this once and make supplication to the Lord your God that he would only remove this death from me. He went out from Pharaoh and made supplication to the Lord. So the Lord shifted the wind to the very strong west wind, which took up the locusts and drove them into the Red Sea. Not one locust was left in all the territory of Egypt. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he did not let the sons of Israel go. So just as God promised, we had locusts. Now, whatever food sources the people had managed to cultivate since the hail, forget it, they're all gone. There's not even a leaf of green in the entire nation of Egypt. And that's so contrary to Egypt classically as the fertile valley of North Africa. Notice that the plague is a supernatural increase, once again, of a natural event. And I don't just mean the plague of the locusts themselves. Notice the wind. That's often what does bring locusts in is a change in the wind or the weather and it'll blow a bunch into an area. God does the same. He just intensifies it. And on this day, they munch everything Egypt has. And that leads Pharaoh into another crocodile tear episode. He calls for Moses again. He begs forgiveness, claims he's a sinner, blah, blah, blah. Moses then goes out, probably rolling his eyes and appeals to the Lord. And the wind reverses. And it's interesting, just as miraculous, there's not a single locust left. Not one. Egypt didn't even have to sweep after this was over. More proof of God's power. And of course, Pharaoh's heart is hardened to continue the process. The gods that are mocked in this plague were two, Seth and Isis. Both of them are agricultural gods. Seth was actually drawn with a head that looked like a locust. The ninth plague is now upon Egypt, and with it, the final plague of the series of those three groups of three. And as such, it comes without a warning. Verse 21. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward the sky, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, even a darkness which may be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward the sky, and there was thick darkness in all the land of Egypt for three days. They did not see one another. Nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the sons of Israel had light in their dwellings. 
So Moses initiates darkness on the land of Egypt. It's a darkness that is felt, that is felt. Now, you could take that merely as euphemism, as poetic language. Sometimes we talk about feeling the darkness. But I think in this case, it's meant to suggest that this is a plague that is part physical, part spiritual. People can't see anything whatsoever. That's clear enough. It's as if they've gone completely blind, it would appear. But in the fact that it can also be felt, it's bringing people to a stop, almost a paralysis of sorts, a fear or dread that is enough to cause you to reduce your movement. Now, darkness alone is going to reduce your movement. I get that. But complete stillness, would you not stumble out of your bed at least? But they stay put. They stay in a single place for three days. That would suggest that the darkness has a debilitating effect of some kind. And that's the felt part of this. I'm not suggesting they're paralyzed. I'm talking about something in which they're either spiritually, emotionally or otherwise, they feel paralyzed in the way that some people freeze in a moment of terror. But this goes on for three days. The closest I think I could compare it to in terms of dread or the spiritual weight of something like this is the stories you hear about people who have gone into anesthesia, but they've woken up just enough that they're conscious, but they can't move, talk, or let anybody know that they're awake, and yet the operations continue. That's sort of a very dreadful moment to consider, and it happens. I'm sure it must be the most terrifying thing imaginable. That's, I think, closer to what must be happening here. It's not merely the inconvenience of a darkness. And remember, it's the ninth of nine, and they've been getting progressively worse. In contrast to this, you have Goshen. Now, they says here they still have light in homes, and I think that's meant to imply that they did experience the outer darkness, that there is no light in the universe right now, that stars, sun, moon, any source of light has been turned off by God. That would have affected Goshen as well. It's hard to imagine that God would have left a shining beam of light over Goshen, though he could have, I guess, but it's more likely that he simply did not give them the spiritual darkness, the, the felt part of it, and they had light in their homes, so they were not inconvenienced in that sense. Consider God's sense of irony, though, in this judgment. In the earlier moment, Pharaoh had declared that Israel had better fear the Egyptian sun god, Ra. And the next thing he knows, without warning, Egypt is plunged into a sunless existence for three days. Now, in the pantheon of Egyptian gods, more of their pantheon represented sun, moon, and stars than any other part of creation. That's where most of their gods were centered. So there's a long list. A partial list of gods mocked would include Ra, of course. There's another sun god, Kepri. Herate is another sun god. They have multiple sun gods. Aten is the sun disk god. Horus, who is a winged sun disk god. Atum, a god of the setting sun. Thoth, the moon god, and Newt, again, the sky goddess. So let's see how this rounds out here in Exodus chapter 10, verse 24. Then Pharaoh called to Moses and said, Go serve the Lord, only let your flocks and your herds be detained. Even the little ones may go with you. But Moses said, You must also let us have sacrifices and burnt offerings that we may sacrifice them to the Lord our God. Therefore, our livestock too shall go with us. Not a hoof shall be left behind. For we shall take some of them to serve the Lord our God. And until we arrive there, we ourselves do not know what we shall serve, with what we shall serve the Lord. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he was not willing to let them go. Then Pharaoh said to him, Get away from me. Beware. Do not see my face again, for in the day you see my face, you shall die. Moses said, You are right. 
I shall never see your face again. You think Moses has the big picture on the plan? He's even that confident to know. You're right. This happens to be the end. Nice knowing you. God has set a limit, a time limit on the plague of the darkness. Remember three days? He did that because until the darkness is lifted, this meeting could never take place. So there was no need for Pharaoh to say anything before the the plague went away. That's really a perfect confirmation of all that we've been saying, that these plagues were not dependent on Pharaoh's behavior in any sense, except in the sense that God had to keep him hardened so that they could continue to come. And when this thing had played itself out, God then relents. Then that produces the meeting. And, of course, Pharaoh calls for Moses and says, Israel may go. But then for the fourth time, he tries to negotiate. But his position is weakened with each of these. He's been willing to give more ground. He's finally at the point of saying, just leave some animals behind. And remember, his purpose in all of this is to try to keep Israel from leaving permanently. And this is his weakest play yet, because you might imagine that had Moses been willing to accept this, they might have gone and left behind their animals and just settled on that. So there's a real risk here in this deal from Pharaoh's point of view that it might not have kept Israel, that it might have allowed them to go and never return. So he's holding on to him with a little thread right now, trying his best. Moses, though, makes the obvious point. Um, you know, we're supposed to go sacrifice animals. It's kind of hard to do that if you make me leave all my animals. I have to have my animals. Now, that wouldn't have been the only reason for him to say no, of course. He was going to say no anyway because he's going to do what God told him. But he adds this comical statement. You know, I'm not even going to leave a hoof. Perhaps Pharaoh was even willing to give some consideration to Moses' demands at this point. You know, Maybe he would even have been convinced to say, okay, you can take some animals. But it never gets to that point because God steps in, as you see, and hardens Pharaoh's heart right at this point. This plague has a direct parallel to the plague of tribulation that happens in a couple of different places. There's actually multiple instances of darkening and tribulation. But the most direct parallel is the fifth bold judgment where you see a similar darkness In that case, the darkness is so great that people gnaw their tongues in pain, we're told. In Scripture, the number nine has a meaning associated with it. The meaning associated with nine is judgment. The first nine judgments are clearly separated from the tenth in their pattern and in their nature to make that point. That there was this period of nine, nine judgments grouped in threes, so as to communicate judgment. And the three, groups of three here, three is the number for God in complete form. So if you take the number of God and the number of judgment and you put them together, you have a series of plagues designed to communicate God working to bring judgment. And the number ten is the number for testimony. Testimony meaning testifying to God, witnessing of God, in a positive sense usually. And the tenth plague will be that witness to the world of God's work. Not just in this moment, of course, but in what it pictures, more importantly, that is the Passover of Christ, the Passover lamb. So if you look across all nine of these plagues that we've now covered, God has shown his power in multiple ways. And let's just summarize those as we finish. He's shown his power over the natural world, proving he is creator. That's in contrast to Egypt that believed other gods were responsible for elements of creation. But now God has shown those other gods to be frauds. For he had the greater power over creation. Secondly, he's shown his power over life and death. Having taken Egyptian lives, the lives of Egyptian livestock, while preserving the lives of Israel. So that men and animals are living and dying according to God's purpose. Egypt believed that they were being preserved by their own power and by the power of their gods. They believed they had their own destiny in their hands. Certainly Pharaoh believed that. Third thing, the Lord has shown his power to sovereignly control human events so as to confirm 
his eternal plan. Thinking about these plagues for a minute, these plagues and their effect on Egypt are a perfect picture of what God is going to do in tribulation. So by studying these plagues and seeing that relationship, we come to appreciate God's in control of human events and human circumstances over eons of time. So that things that happen very early are connected to things that are going to happen very late. And if that's the case, then by definition, everything in between also must be under his control because he can't bring you from here to here without being able to control everything that happens in between along the way. So it shows the breadth of God's sovereignty and the control he has over history and human events. That leaves us with evidence that God is working to orchestrate all human history toward an appointed end. That's the only way that Romans 8.28 is true, right? He can't work all things to good if he doesn't have control of all things. Fourth, God has demonstrated his authority over the hearts of men. So that control isn't over merely behavior or on the large scope of human activity. It extends even into the hearts of individuals. God says Pharaoh was raised up for the purpose of God turning his heart as God pleased and thereby yielding an outcome that God had assigned to him from the beginning. If God can do that with one man, he can do it with any man and is doing it in some sense with every man, because all of us, though we live according to our will to an extent, are fitting into a plan that God has orchestrated and is seeing to conclusion. That's the mystery of of God's power and sovereignty working through the lives of people who have been given a will to do to some extent what they wish, but yet never to the extent that they can contradict God's intentions or purposes. And, of course, understanding that from our side of the equation is literally impossible. You know, we can't understand how I can do what I want and it all works out the way God wanted. Even in my sin, I'm performing things that God expects to see done. Not that it makes him the author of sin. It just makes him capable of controlling and using my sin. Then, lastly, what we've learned. God has demonstrated he is a covenant-keeping God, fulfilling all the things he promised centuries earlier to Abraham. Next time, we will focus down on that final judgment. It's really chapters 11, which is a warning or an introduction, and then chapter 12, which is the event itself, with follow-on events and then later chapters, of course. We'll study at least the next two chapters when we get back next time. Heavenly Father, thank you for all the display of power and sovereignty and glory that you have given us through your word tonight. We didn't live in those times, Father, and we are thankful for the fact that we missed those judgments, but... But we are equally thankful, Father, for the record that we have in your word, that men and women were faithful to pass down the truth of what they saw and heard, and in that way witness to your greatness, to your glory, and to your power. And we have learned from it, Father, but we've also learned that we have a similar role. I pray that we would, in our daily walk, would be witnesses in in our own way to the glory and the power you've shown us, to the mercy you've shown us, to the grace that is available to others. Let us be that witness, Father, and show us how. Give us courage, give us the words, give us eyes to see the opportunities. And bring us back next week according to your will. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.